This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. A little later in the show, we are going to talk with native Detroiter and cultural critic Dream Hampton about her new docuseries, Surviving R. Kelly, which began airing last night on Lifetime. We're going to talk about uh, the work that went into that docuseries and the really, really harrowing details that emerge during it uh, from the women who accuse R. Kelly of being their uh, abuser. Uh, You're going to want to stay tuned to that conversation. I imagine it will be quite interesting. Dream Hampton is a really wonderful uh, documentarian and journalist and did an amazing bang-up job on this docuseries. But first, this week a new Congress was sworn in and Democrats took back control of the House for the first time in a long time. Nancy Pelosi will once again be the House Speaker. And all of this unfolds amid a government shutdown that President Donald Trump is leading as he demands funding for a wall along the southern border with Mexico. What is in store for 2019 in Congress? Joining us now to talk about this from more of a Washington perspective is Libby Casey. She is an on-air reporter and anchor covering politics and accountability for the Washington Post. Libby Casey, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, Let's start with the latest on uh, the shutdown. There are some bills sort of circulating right now that I guess aim to get the government back open. Uh, What chance do they have of moving President Donald Trump off of his current square where he says no government without a border wall? One of the first orders of business of the new House of Representatives yesterday, this Democratic wave, was to pass legislation to reopen the government and temporarily get Department of Homeland Security sort of separated out, readdress that in a month, but get everything else open and rolling. However, it's dead on arrival in the Republican-controlled Senate because Mitch McConnell is smart enough not to bring a bill up that he doesn't know (laughs) the president will sign. So if the president's saying he'll veto it, there's no reason for Mitch McConnell to have his members stick their necks out vote, let's get the government back open just to have the president kill it. So really, the only negotiator that's relevant right now is President Donald Trump, not even Mike Pence, the vice president, not even his spokespeople or people who usually act as a liaison to Congress, because we even heard the vice president throw out a number about half that over $2 billion. And when the president had this cabinet meeting this week and did this rolling like 90 minute chat with the media, he said somebody mentioned, you know, two point five billion dollars. Well, that somebody was the vice president. <laughs> but <laughs> according to President Trump, like it didn't hold any weight because it wasn't the number he's seeking. Yeah, uh, I, I had a conversation uh, earlier this week with Dan Kildy, who's a Democrat from here in mm-hmm. in, in Michigan, uh, and asked what what he was willing to use as you know a bargaining chip uh, n- to negotiate with the president, what he might be willing to give up, what other Democrats might be willing to give up, uh, and he, he he was pretty firm in the in the idea that they would not allow money to go to. Uh, a border wall. And so my next question for him was, well, if that's your position and the president's position is, well, I won't open the government again, uh, fund the government again without the border wall. How do we how do we get to some sort of resolution? And I guess I've I've not um, I guess I've not seen before in Washington this kind of stalemate where both sides are completely dug in over a government shutdown. 
And I would say Democrats have become more entrenched because you have now Speaker Pelosi saying no wall. I mean, just putting it as frankly as that. Democrats are saying they will provide money um, for the wall in the sense of technology, you know, beefing up security, having advanced technological services, but not this old school concrete wall or even like the steel slat barrier the president's talking about now. So Chuck Schumer, the leader of Democrats in the Senate, had thrown out a number a couple of months ago, even a month ago. Um, But as the president kept shutting things down, the Democrats have, I would say, become more entrenched and more empowered because, as you know, Stephen, they now control the House. I mean, yesterday was really a game changer. I think even for cynics in Washington, it was very powerful to see this diverse class with a lot of young people, a lot of women, um, so many more women of color than we've ever seen in Washington before uh, representing the people of the United States. Like there really is a feeling that this is a new day in Washington. And Mm -hmm. so the Democrats feel emboldened by that. And you know, we, we don't see a lot of signs that anyone's willing to blink. One thing that happened yesterday was two Republicans in the Senate, Cory Gardner and Susan Collins from Colorado and Maine, both up for re-election in 2020, they said they want to see an end to the shutdown. So, so they're the first Republicans to say, you know, this isn't really worth it. But until more Republicans come out with that message or until Democrats can throw something on the table that President Trump will agree to, we're not sure when this could end. So, so what does that be? begin to look like in terms of the shutdown. I know that the longer it goes on, the more things that won't uh, be able to function in Washington and in people's lives around around the country. How bad, I guess, could that get? Yeah, sometimes I fear that when people hear government shutdown, they think this is just a Washington problem and it only affects like a small group of people. But the ripple effects will be felt by Americans. And it's not just people visiting national parks or trying to come visit the beautiful Smithsonian Zoo or the or, you know the art museums. Um, it will be, in Washington, D.C., it's people trying to get marriage licenses. It's also people who will be looking for housing assistance. Um, th- there is going to be real-life repercussions for American citizens. Now, this is a partial government shutdown. So essential services, as they're deemed, are still running. You can still get through TSA. You know, a lot of a lot of things are still functioning. Um, but it will be felt more and more. And it was like we were in a bit of a bubble because of the holiday. A lot of federal workers were off anyway. Um, Americans were tuned into their own lives and their holiday celebrations. But more people will pay attention to this as the time grows on. Um, You know, here in Washington, it's small businesses that are being affected. Everyone from food truck vendors to people who sell tchotchkes to the tourists um, to, you know, my Lyft driver this morning was concerned because there's just it's a very quiet city right now. And the more those stories get out, the, the more Americans may be concerned. Also, people who work for the Coast Guard. I mean, there's there's people who are in the country who are saying, well, maybe we can raise money for them or try to have like a food bank or something to help them while they're not getting a paycheck. Um, but we're not even sure if that's legal at this point. Like, are they allowed to accept those donations and gifts? Mm. So there are real Americans affected by this, including Border Patrol agents, you know, people who work for. Um, this is one of the know, great ironies here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, let's talk a little about Nancy Pelosi, uh, who was sworn in again as House Speaker this week. There, there are a lot of people, including some members of the delegation from here in Michigan, who had real reservations about that. Dan Kildee 
was uh, one Alyssa Slotkin, who is uh, a new member of Congress, actually mm-hmm. voted against her, I believe, uh, uh, in that in that uh, in that balloting. Uh, is this a good move for the Dems to go back to Pelosi as their leader, and and how will she be able to deal with McConnell and Trump to actually get things done? Yeah, Representative Slotkin registered present rather than voting for Speaker Pelosi. You know, the narrative that came out of yesterday was this is now officially, if there was any doubt, the most powerful woman in politics in the United States of America. And she becomes the first person to um, return as speaker, to have two terms as speaker in more than 60 years since Sam Rayburn. Mm -hmm. So she's not just making history for women. She's making history for American politicians. She has uh, made some concessions. You know, she said she will be term limited, essentially. She has opened up more leadership positions and listened to some of the progressives who wanted to make sure there were more ways they could serve. She's trying to bring in more of these young voices. Um, So I think Pelosi did what Pelosi does so well, which is listen to individual concerns and complaints and try to address them in that very one-on-one vote-counting way. Um, she has not indicated that she's going to, you know, be out there trying to impeach President Trump. She's taking a much more sort of crafty approach to how she's, you know, fielding questions about her role combating President Trump. Um, and, and yesterday she really tried to make a call out to everyone from veterans to, you know, police officers to families. So she's trying to have an inclusive voice. And it will be a powerful symbol to see President Trump delivering the State of the Union in just a couple of weeks with Nancy Pelosi, Speaker mm-hmm. Pelosi, one of those two people right behind him. So she has she has secured power. And the question is, what can she do to message to the American people to show that Democrats are going to be trying to do something productive even as they act as a counterforce to President Trump? You know, uh, the fact that she was able to convince this enough of this new, more energetic, I guess, class of Democrats uh, to vote for certainly suggests that she still has quite a bit of influence uh, in the House. Uh, Do you think that signals that she'll be there much longer? Uh, One of the things that Dan Kildee said to me uh, late last year was that he would only su- uh, support her for speaker again on the condition that there is a succession plan and that, that succession plan unfold in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, can we expect to see Pelosi try to maintain control of the House past 2020? So she has agreed to term limits, essentially, and she's given no indication she wouldn't stick with that. I mean, she is in her late 70s. It's a little bit ironic to some that the other two men who are in top leadership positions were not... They, no one extracted that kind of a pledge from them, from even them. though they're like the same <laughs> age and and then they've been around just as long. And, and that could be a vehicle for young you know, members to to, to rise up in the ranks. Um, but no, a lot of people didn't think she would agree to a term limit because it might limit her power. But it's not really the same thing as like a lame duck president, someone who might say, I'm only going to run for one term as president. Pelosi can still wield a lot of power in the next few years and she can still direct the Democratic Party to 2020 and beyond and be an effective voice, even knowing that this you know, isn't going to last forever. And she can also get people on board by helping them and showing them, look, I can help you get into leadership. I can help you grow. 
And what you and I don't see, Stephen, is, is that she's been out on the campaign trail all these months, right, leading up to the midterms, sort of campaigning for people, raising money, not necessarily doing the um, the big campaign rally you might imagine like a Donald Trump or a Mike Pence doing, but fundraising, fundraising. And, and that pays off because it does create loyalty and trust among your incoming members. Mm-hmm. So the key for her is going to be a, to be a really good listener. And then reflect the values of her caucus and how she, you know, sets the agenda for what Democrats are going to do. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Libby Casey. She's an on-air reporter and anchor who covers politics and accountability for The Washington Post. We're talking about the new Congress, the 116th Congress, sworn in on Thursday uh, in, uh, or maybe it was on Wednesday, uh, in Washington, D.C. All of the things that will unfold in the next uh, 24 months as they try to negotiate uh, with uh, each other and with uh, President Donald Trump over policy here in the United States. All of this unfolds, of course, during a government shutdown that was initiated over a standoff about President Trump's idea to build a wall along the southern border. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. What are your predictions for 2019 and politics and Congress? Is this going to be a more civil year than we had in 2018? We're going to be able to put aside our political differences and uh, come together with a common set of ideals? Or do you like the chaos, the sort of headbutting that is going on in Congress right now? Do you think it's important for Democrats to stand up to Donald Trump uh, and Mitch McConnell and say, we need something different. We need a different way to get the country moving forward. Uh, Is this scorched earth leading the way to something better, maybe, for the United States? Also, Call and tell us what you think about the prospects for 2020. We've already got a candidate who says she is in the race for the presidency in 2020. It's just January of 2019. We're now going to see two-year-long official campaigns for the presidency. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Libby, I want to talk about Senator Elizabeth Warren, who announced her exploratory committee for a presidential run in 2020. Are we going to see more people uh, jump in this early? I, I am one of those people who says it is just too soon to be talking about uh, a presidential primary or a presidential <laughs> race. I, you know, I, I think this all. I actually think this gets in the way of governing at this point. Uh, the, the 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 constant campaigning, the never-ending campaigning. But, uh, you know, I've said that for a long time and it hasn't had any effect. I mean, it just (laughs) seems to be going very quickly in the other direction. Are are there other people, though, who we are likely to to, to see raise their hands in the next couple of months saying, yeah, I'm going to take a shot at that, too? You are not alone in election fatigue. I think that is like (laughs) universally felt, including by people here in Washington who may want to get something done in the next, you know, 18 months and not just be looking to the horse race of 2020, we will see emerging candidates come from Congress. And so you'll be seeing people position themselves and use Congress as a vehicle to show the American people what their agenda is, what their goals are. And we'll also be seeing people come from outside of Congress. So yes, I mean, the the key is to, to hit it right. You don't want to wait too late because then staffers get snatched up and they get committed to, to working for individual candidates. There's the 
ground game you've got to be working on in places like Iowa and South Carolina. Um, but you also don't want to flame out too fast, right? So I think there are a lot of people making calculations here in Washington and trying to figure out how to strike when the iron's hot. And also, can you be building something without making it official, right? Can you be making those trips out to places like Iowa before you announce that you're forming an exploratory committee? Um, it's it's already starting. I hate to I hate to break it to you. And Elizabeth <laughs> Warren didn't even give us a break, right? It like it happened like on the cusp of the new year. It was like, <laughs> right. can't you even wait till 2019? But <laughs> but somebody has to has to get things started. And by having Elizabeth Warren be the first, it does give this like progressive you know voice that will that will start setting the agenda for how Democrats are going to talk about 2020. And, and what their goals are. Does that give her much of an advantage, do you think, to be able to say, I'm in it now and I have a full two years to convince the American people? I'd love to hear what your callers say. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I think that I think that's up to the American people. Now, one factor is she can start gaining you know, money. She can start putting together a strong staff, people who want to or are hungry to start. Um, are signing on with her. Um, so there is an advantage in terms of just the basic logistics and the footprint of running a campaign, but you're also under a lot of, and you get a lot of press attention. You're also under scrutiny. Um, you've got President Trump tweeting about you, which can be fantastic for you if you're a progressive <laughs> Democrat, or it can be frustrating if he has messages that you know that sink into the American mind. President Trump's pretty good at, at coming up with nicknames for people that stick. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think the question you're asking is what every potential candidate is asking. Is it when is it too soon? When is it the right time? And and do I have an advantage by being a dark horse and waiting, or do I have an advantage by getting right out there in front? Mm. Um, and you know we saw Martin O'Malley this week who ran for president last time around say I'm not going to run. Not and not going to be in, yeah. And who is he looking towards? Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> so he's saying, let's look at that guy. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in him running. I think that's a really interesting development as well. Martin O'Malley is someone I've known for a really long time, back to the time when he was a city councilman in uh, huh. Baltimore uh, and and was this very young, exciting politician in Maryland, went on to become the governor there and took a shot at the presidency. I think him pointing at, at Beto O'Rourke is a little bit of pointing in the mirror. I see a lot of similarities mm. between uh, those two those two political mm-hmm. figures. So I was really interested to see uh, Martin say that this week. Uh, I, can I, Stephen, can I mention yeah, one thing right that ahead. has been a great conversation? As Elizabeth Warren's come out, there's been a lot of question, is she likable? Is she not likable? And it's actually led to some great analysis and conversation about why do women get put under this microscope of like, are they likable or not? And maybe a different way than men. And there's a great piece in the Post in the Washington Post this morning about this, about how if you're potentially a woman candidate, you've you've got this like uphill battle to climb the Hillary Clinton shadow hanging over you, but also this idea of of how you can separate yourself from a Hillary Clinton figure Hmm. and be your own person. But we're still working on as a country, like how we see women in a light that's not just about if we like them or not. Right. So it's, right. it's led to some good discussions. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what you expect to see from the Congress uh, this year in Washington. Also call and tell us what you think about Election 2020 already taking shape uh, as Elizabeth Warren, a senator from Massachusetts, says she is going to take a shot uh, for sure, at the presidency uh, in in 2020, are you excited about that prospect, or do you think it's just too early 
to be talking about the presidential race in 2020. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Jim in Detroit. Jim, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, My question uh, about all of this is sort of not a political question, but if if this country is going to spend $5 billion on anything, there should be a factual basis to say that this is a good investment. Historically, walls have not keeping, kept anybody out. The Berlin Wall failed. The wall that Israel put up has pretty much failed. The walls of all the castles in the medieval times mm-hmm. failed. They don't keep people out. And if the administration has some sort of evidence that suggests that the wall they propose is going to keep people out. I'd like to see that Hmm. because everything they propose is more based on opinion than fact. You know, uh, Jim, I really appreciate the call and and the comments. Uh, uh, Libby, I I see this more as a symbolic uh, issue for conservatives and Republicans than it is a practical one. And I think Jim raises really great points about the history of walls. Uh, I, I think another uh, data point to sort of insert there is the fact that this is a country that has gone around the world for the last 50 years at least telling people to take down walls or not to build <laughs> them um, uh, and now proposes to build its own wall. But but the, the practical end of this doesn't get a whole lot of discussion you know whether this would even work uh, along the southern border, uh, along the southern border. And five billion dollars is not going to build a wall that stretches the length of the border. It's sure. only a, a small part of it, and that's very key. And you know, some Democrats have have admitted, look, if we spend even half of that amount of money over two, you know, two and a half billion dollars, let's say, that sounds like a huge amount of money to me and you. <laughs> and I think to, to people who are looking to boost the budget for things like science and investments in education, it sounds like a lot of money. Um, but in terms of border force and border protection, it is not that much and it won't go that far. Um, Lindsey Graham, though, senator from South Carolina, said this week that if President Trump backs down on this, that this would be the end of President Trump being an effective president. He said that's probably the end of his presidency. And so you've got this really ramped up political rhetoric that rather than cooling down, just seems to be amping up. And so not only President Trump, but his supporters are getting even more entrenched in this idea of we've got to win this one. And for the president, it does seem both symbolic as well as to him, Significant, And when I've gone to President Trump's rallies and campaign events, you do hear his supporters saying they want this wall. And it's it's not a lot of details about like how it's going to work and how effective it'll be. It's it's the idea of like stopping the border crossings and holding firm to a campaign pledge. Yeah. And 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 there is I think we, we have to sort of acknowledge that that there is a there is a very strong cultural imperative behind the support for this wall this is about uh, fear of dislike of uh, people from from Mexico uh, Latinos uh, who who come to this uh, this country from that country uh, and and it, you know it, it continues to astound me I think uh, how how brazen the president is in in appealing to that but also how many people he's able to to get excited about it yeah yeah, yeah. and and there is a base that totally supports and believes in the president's agenda 
to get a wall built. Yeah. Now, how will that r- play out in terms of Republican support? I mean, that's where the question lies. And and when do Republicans get frustrated at feeling like they don't have any bargaining power? Because there's two things going on. There's Republicans feeling a bit disempowered here, right? They, they Even though Mitch McConnell is the, the most powerful Republican in Congress, he does not have a lot of say right now in how this is gamed out. And there could be concessions. You know, there could be partial funding for border security or a border technology uh, wall, quote unquote, in exchange for some legislation Democrats want. That's how Congress often works, the give and take, the the bargaining. But until President Trump agrees to something, Mitch McConnell's hands are a bit tied. So will Republicans get frustrated by the process? And then separately, what will they hear from their constituents? Will they hear from their constituents what Lindsey Graham is saying, (laughs) which is don't give in no matter what? Or will they start hearing from people, hey, I'm a small business contractor. I have a government contract. I am not getting paid anymore. (laughs) I've, I've, I'm, we're stuck. We're, we might be in Michigan or we might be in, you know, Utah, but I suddenly can't work on my contracts because the government shut down and this partial shutdown. And who will the American people blame for that? Will they blame Speaker Pelosi or will they blame President Trump? Okay, let me, Casey, we do have uh, one comment on Twitter from uh, Brad who says, Trump has been campaigning for 2020 since November 2015, so why shouldn't the Dems <laughs> announce? I think that's one way to look at the question about whether Elizabeth Warren is a little early into the race or not. Um, Great point. Yeah. Great point. All right, Libby yep. Casey, on-air reporter and anchor covering politics and accountability for The Washington Post. Always great to talk with you. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of your show online today. <laughs> right. Sounds great. Yes, yeah, it should be. Uh, up next, we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk to native Detroiter Dream Hampton about her new docu series uh, about the scandalous life of R&B singer R. Kelly. Stay tuned for more Detroit today. Thank you.